We are an amazing species, an amazing culture, an amazing civilization. Whenever you feel down, just spare a tiny thought for the fact that at any other time and in almost any other place, people lived lives of more hardship, more danger, more hunger than you. That doesn't mean you're not allowed to feel blue. You are. It just means that there are a lot of things that you don't have to feel blue about that most humans who ever lived did. And what has generated this bounty that we currently enjoy? We didn't steal it, despite the ills of colonialism. We didn't. From whom did we steal space rockets and marriage equality and in vitro fertilisation? We didn't get it because we were uniquely violent, many more violent cultures, litter history. To the extent that we are free and plump and equal, it's because of one thing above all others. It's because we started listening to each other, arguing with each other, enlightening each other. What made the Enlightenment different, what unleashed the ferocious creativity of the modern age was that we stopped respecting witch hunts and dogmas dark age thinking and judgmentalism and censoriousness we started having conversations that were mind expanding that were generous and above all conversations that were uncomfortable Well, I'm wildly excited for today's show. A fantastic episode. Uh, do you remember the letter, the letter, the Harper's letter, which caused such a kerfuffle? It was a letter published in, uh, in Harper's magazine, which was essentially a call by a number of intellectuals, everyone from Noam Chomsky on the left to people whose names currently escape me on the right. But anyway, a huge gaggle of influential and esteemed people saying... Can we all take a deep breath and be a bit more respectful to one another in the public sphere? Because all of us value free speech and the free exchange of ideas more than uh, holding our punches and trying to conform to what everyone thinks is the nice thing to say. This letter would in any other year have been regarded as a fairly uncontroversial statement of traditional small-l liberal classical liberal values that have undergirded Western civilization since the Enlightenment. But unfortunately, uh, in the current climate, it was seen as an insult, a provocation, a an alt-right adjacent attempt to undermine the legitimate grievances of minorities. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to one of its signatories, perhaps my favorite of its signatories, Katie Herzog, who she actually had an article written about her in the New York Times about a year before the letter, which was entitled, Those People We Tried to Cancel, They're All Hanging Out Together. Uh, because she's a journalist, she was living and working in Seattle, and in 2017 she wrote an article in which she reported on people who had reversed or halted their gender transition, and she subsequently received uh, a tremendous amount of hate mail and ostracization. She ended up moving from Seattle to, to the suburbs. And so her pro she was profiled along with other people in the New York Times as part of this kind of what they call they called an intellectual gray area or uh, the problematic adjacent people. 
She now has a podcast, a wildly successful podcast called Blocked and Reported, which discusses these kinds of culture war issues with perhaps the most blocked, most reported, (laughs) most problematic adjacent. He's not even problematic adjacent anymore. He's just plain problematic. Uh, Gentleman in in the American culture wars, a man named Jesse Single. Uh, And I wanted to talk to Katie because she has a very... And look, I I wanted to be clear that when we talk about the problem of the culture wars and wokeness and all this sort of stuff and cancel culture and free speech, uh, it can be easy to be misunderstood as focusing on this because I don't think it's important to focus on the huge underlying problems of inequality or injustice that many minority communities are fighting for. And that, and nothing could be further from the truth. It's precisely because I want a, a, the, the maximally robust version of pro-minority rights to ascend, and because I want our positions, I say our meaning on the left broadly, to be as as defensible as possible, as appealing as possible to as wide an array of people as possible, that I have conversations like this where I try to pick apart the ways in which we're failing to uh, to be good to one another in a way that seems appealing for other people to want to come along on the social justice ride. So I just want to, I just want to sort of underline that, that nothing here is intended to say that the progress of people of colour, of sexual minorities, of, of women is is something that isn't worth expending 110% of our focus on. But there is a little bit of a, 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 a corner of the global conversation which should also be directed towards conversations like the one I'm having here with Katie, which says, how best do we articulate a generous and expansive and rambunctious and boisterous vision of a communal society where we can all reach towards a common truth rather than being divisive? And that's what Katie's up to. It's what I'm up to. Please enjoy this conversation. Follow Katie on Twitter. Subscribe to her blog and reported uh, podcast and enjoy me getting into it with Katie Hertzog. Australians will abbreviate everything to the shortest yeah. possible. Yeah. You know, it's a uh, you know you will will you know will add e right. on the end of anything to make it diminutive. Right. Uh, brekkie for breakfast right. and so on. And when you go to the states, there's a lot of the opposite where they'll say a taxi cab, uh-huh. yeah, or tuna fish, right, right. Well, yeah, the, the Aussies are like, no way. Yeah. Yeah, no we, way. We, we also, do do, I don't know if this is, has reached uh, your shores yet, but we also do this thing where at least progressives do this thing where instead of saying something like homeless people, we say like people experiencing homelessness. Um, yes, yeah, we do. Yeah. We yeah. do. You know what we call them here? Uh, what? We call them rough sleepers. Oh, I sort of like that. Yeah, rough sleepers because it also implies that, you know, it's not a permanent thing. Right. They're just sleeping rough. Right, just sleeping rough. Uh, so let give us give people some background about. Uh, I think the, the the most useful insights that you can provide us with, apart from just being your delightful self, will be around the whole question of cancel culture and whether it's a thing and whether it's just a term that right wing people use in order to uh, to discuss a phenomenon of social justice where sort of chickens are coming home to roost and people are being held accountable for racist and homophobic and misogynistic behaviour that they could get away with in the past, um, which I think some cohort of certainly Australian listeners and 
my sort of woker friends online in the States seem to think it is. But because you sort of find yourself both at the periphery and the epicenter of a recurring series of um, of controversies, can you give us a snapshot of where you understand the, the kind of cultural dynamics of, of cancel culture being? Sure. I think both things are correct. I think the term is unfortunate and it has been, uh, it's been co-opted. It's been co-opted many times. Um, and, and, it, and it now uh, has really been weaponized by, by certain people on the political right, particularly politicians, um, as a way of sort of uh, dodging legitimate criticism. Um, of course, that is the exact same thing other people would say about my about the part of cancel that I of cancel culture that I think is real, um, but I think what it describes is a broader phenomenon that includes uh, what I have observed as an illiberalization of the American left. So principles that not very long ago would have been considered, you know, sort of basic liberal principles or uh, progressive principles, things like the need for due process, free speech, free speech, sort of almost above all else. Uh, as the sort of central value, um, have become, we've sort of put down that mantle. Can I just put, can I begin by pushing back on the free speech sure. thing? Because, uh, and just to clarify, terminologically liberal, you're going to use in the American sense to mean left wing. Uh, in Australia, the Conservative Party is the capital L liberal party. So we talk about like big L liberals versus small L liberals. Uh, and we would normally use a small L liberal to be more of a sort of a classical libertarian type, uh, old stuffy English person writing about free speech, um, perhaps, but not necessarily being left wing. In fact, that might be more along the the lines of the Economist magazine, or you know, a, a right-wing, conserv- uh, a sort of non-socially conservative, economically conservative person. So I think people understand those terms. Um, I'm not sure that the left has been terribly committed to free speech in the past, the way that we currently think it was. Interesting. So, so you think I have some uh, revisionist history here? Well, maybe. I mean, I'm just, I, I don't, I'm not uh, one sort of crisis of conscience that I'm currently undergoing through all this mess. And we will elaborate for people about the exact details of this mess in, in, in a moment, if you're not quite sure what we're talking about, is that I, I, I've started to wonder whether or not true free speech principles and genuine old fashioned small L liberalism have never been terribly popular amongst the populace. And that it's sort of been something that we've, they've gone along with because enlightened elites have convinced them that it's the right way to organize the state's affairs. But actually, the left, just as much as the right, I mean, think about the 50s when there was incredibly toxic uh, prohibitions on speech through McCarthyism on the right. But the left were apologists for Stalin. Sure. And we're really not interested in having an honest and open debate about the limits of communism. And so, I, yeah, anyway, I just, I'd throw in that observation, well, but the, but we can come back to it if you I want. I think, I mean, in that particular example, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not a historian and I wasn't around then, so I have to admit some ignorance on this question. But um, uh, I can't imagine, you know, uh, Kennedy, um, you know, being an apologist for Stalin. So are you thinking of like the far left? Because that, is, or, I mean, what we call, like in the United States, you know, left and liberal are two very different things, um, sort of loosely maybe under the democrat uh, the democratic 
party. Um, but give us your definition of left and liberal. Okay, so I think of leftist as more of a of an economic stance. And right. right. So Bernie Sanders would be would be left um, and Bernie Sanders wouldn't even be far left. Um, Bernie Sanders would be, you know, Democratic Socialist um, and then liberal, um, more free market, um, uh, more. Uh, let's see. Yeah, just I mean, just further to the right on economic stuff, I think, is, is the biggest right. dist- distinction for me. It- but maybe more traditionally committed to principles of live and let live, uh, individualism. Yes. Uh, like, I, you know, I may hate what the Voltaire principle of, you know, I may, I may hate what you say, but I'll defend with my life your right to say exactly. it. Uh, those sorts of principles, yeah. And I, I think the democratic socialist wing of the left left uh, has never been terribly uh, uh, much more associated with true liberalism than conservatives have been. I mean, JFK is an interesting example because um, he was he was such a, a beacon on on the hill, but I mean, he contains so much so so much of a sense of American optimism about what the future could have been, and so on. And his life was cut so tragically short. But I mean, if you think of more doctrinaire labor union leaders and Jimmy Hoffa and people like right. that, you know, right. people who were very very committed to workers' rights and old school leftism. Right. Uh, I'm not sure they were that liberal, but anyway, let's yeah. get back to the yeah. let's let's get back into into camp liberal, <laughs> uh, and tell us what's going what's going on. I, I, well, first of all, I think you make a good point there. I mean, has anybody are the people in power ever in favor of free speech? Maybe that's the question um, because there's less need to defend uh, the rights of everybody to, to say what they want if you're the people in power. Um, and right now, mm. the cultural left or liberals, at least, have the cultural power, and now political power too. Of course, it, it depends where you are. Um, there are lots of states that. Are- but also, I mean, that's interesting, Katie. I also would add to that: not only are, inter- are people in power ever interested in free speech, but are ideologues ever interested in free right, speech? Totally. I mean, regardless of your politics, if you're a theocratic ideologue, if you're an Islamist or if you're an evangelical Christian, you're not particularly interested in the free speech rights of other people because you know that you're right. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, liberalism is a weird ideology in the sense that it's like the only thing that's right is that we're all going to be able to be wrong. Right. You know, there are, of course, some exceptions that I think Noam Chomsky would be, excuse me, Noam Chomsky would be maybe the most prominent. Um, But right, what I see happening now, and I think this is partly political, but I think it has more to do with uh, these cultural forces like social media and also a response to Donald Trump. Um, You know, what Matt Iglesias called the great awakening, uh, what I see is just this sort of increasing social pressure to adhere to one particular uh, narrative or a few particular narratives. And any deviation from that can come with really serious consequences. Um, and in some cases, those consequences can actually be beneficial to you, um, depending on who you are. You know, if you're a person in the media and you get fired from your job or smeared, uh, as a bigot or something like that, um, you know, in some cases that can be, that can actually be good. It can increase your profile. Uh, it can get you more subscribers on Substack, but of course, this isn't just about people in the media or, or public figures. You know, there's also this sort of stifling effect. So when people see uh, these these social media draggings or when someone's fired from a job for saying something in politics or something like that, um, my concern is is what that says to everybody who's watching. Um, and I get lots of emails from people who who say, you know, I'm I'm an academic or I'm in a I'm in tech or something like that, and uh, and they're and they're genuinely afraid to voice any sort of um, opinion that that they think might might uh, go against the norm uh, or the prevailing norm at this moment. 
And I think that what are the prevailing norms at the moment? Well, and what would some of those dissident views be? Well, mostly I'm talking about. I get I get emails mostly about gender um, uh, and uh, gender and sex. There's also, of course, race, and we talk about this on my podcast a lot. Um, so if you're a even a slightly to the right on issues like uh, uh, like the Black Lives Matter march over the summer, or if you uh, or if you don't entirely believe the narrative that United States is a, is a white supremacist nation in every, every aspect. Um, I got an email, um, from someone recently who said, you know, I, this was a guy, he was a, he was either in sociology or anthropology. And he said, you know, he said he was black and he said, uh, you know, I, I've seen racism in my life. I know that it exists in different, uh, different facets of the country, but I don't see it on my, on my campus. And, but the prevailing view on his campus was that the campus itself, that this university, this incredibly liberal university was this sort of bastion of white supremacy. Um, and he, and this was a black guy and he didn't feel like he could say that um, mm. among his colleagues. And there's a reason he feels he can't say that because people get fired for saying things like that. Can you give us some examples of prominent cases sure uh yeah and and he's actually so he's at a public university so he wouldn't actually be fired for that he's he had no but right. at, by analogy you know, right, he right. would get into trouble. right so in his case i don't think it was fear of firing as much as it was this sort of um the social stigma um even for yeah. even for somebody who is a, a minority within his university he's a minority within his university and also an ideological minority but but uh but an example of someone who did get fired so there's the reporter for slate mike pesca and um, he had hosted a really uh, popular podcast called The Gist. He'd been there for, I think, seven years. And Mike got, he had a slate, you know, uh, they have a Slack, like a Slack channel, like every, every media outlet. And during a conversation on, on Slack. is a sort of like team. We right. would use teams here right. probably, yeah, like a way of chatting right. while you're at work. I, yeah, just a, a way to chat. Um and he was so he was on Slack, and they were having a conversation about the about the the forced resignation of Donald McNeil, this New York Times um, reporter, sort of veteran reporter for the Times. He'd been there for over forty five years, and uh, and Donald McNeil had been forced out of his job because during a a, 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 a trip to Peru, a Times sponsored trip to Peru with a bunch of students, he. Uh, mentioned the N-word in the context of asking a question. The students were, were like telling them about uh, one of their, it's like, this is like a, I don't know if turducken means anything in Australia, but this is like a, <laughs> it's like cancel on cancel on cancel. A 12 year old had said the N-word. She was kicked out of school. Donald McNeil asked these people if. if Wait, right. this is actually worth unpacking. Unpack each stage of this. Okay. It's really interesting for people who don't okay. know it. And most people so probably the, won't. So let's start with the 12 year old. Okay. Uh, in- influencer. So the root, the the ground zero of Mike of of years later, Mike Pesca losing his job was a twelve year old. Let's cast our minds back right. to the beginning of time. <laughs> it always starts with a twelve year old girl. Stephen Hawking tells us that in the first billionth of a second, the universe was a red hot mass. It was yes, um, and this particular red hot mass was on a school bus. So so this this subsequent the way that the story has now come out. So. It took months to like get the full story, but so what happened is that this twelve-year-old girl was on the back of the bus with one of her friends, maybe the front of the bus, I don't know, 
And uh, her friend was black and she was Jewish and they were sort of taunting each other with, with like racial jokes or racial slurs. And apparently it was not, I, I don't know entirely in the details, but I don't know that this was like a fight or a heated conversation. They were just sort of like being kids, being edgy and making jokes, um, taunting each other with racial slurs as apparently 12 year olds do. Um, and so a few years later, a video of this emerges and the girl was kicked out of school or uh, suspended. And so there was a school trip, a New York Times sponsored school trip to Peru. And so it was these high school students. It's Katie, yeah. it's so hard to keep track of all I these. I thought the 12 year old was the one who was doing a rap on, uh, on Twitch or something. What was, different, wait, is it? That's, is a, that a, that's a different one. Is that a different, how many 12 year olds are getting canceled? That was a 13 year old who got kicked out of college, was, right? Um, she got kicked out of college because back when she was a kid, she'd done like a kind of a rap thing and she said the N word in the, well, I don't know if she like was for, rapping. For half a second or I don't something. know if she was rapping, but oh. she said the N word. And she was well. Yeah. I saw one where there was just a girl who was doing a. I'm not surprised. Kind of rap. Thing. Yes, these but, all anyway. of these. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. so this is not the. This is not that. Right. So just that's the thing. There are there are enough of these stories. These are not so isolated that uh, that these are. We're not cherry picking anecdotes. There is a phenomenon right. going on here. Right. So. Um, yeah. I mean, it is. These are small. These are not. This is not a mass. You know, they're not at every school. Probably doesn't have this happening, but it is happening anyway. So. This twelve-year-old gets. Well, I'm not sure. It probably is increasingly, increasingly like yeah. the case that at every school they're going back through the social media accounts. Someone's going back through the social media accounts of the kids who they don't like is, and trying to find ways of. That is probably <laughs> getting true. them spent. I mean, considering what teenagers are like and what and what sort of information <laughs> exactly. they have access to. Okay, so uh, Donald McNeil. So years later, Donald McNeil is on this this school trip in New York or uh, in Peru. Sponsored by the New York Times. So this was a way... And he's the health He's yeah, a health he reporter? Co- he's a, a science Times? health reporter who had been at the paper for 45 years, but he really became famous just this last year or, or became sort of a... You know, he was a he was a, a, a reporter, but he wasn't sort of a. He was star, a celebrated, right. uh, elder sta- statesman right. of American journalism in a way, and had had done terrific work during the pandemic. Right. Keeping people yeah, informed. because of COVID, um, he became the the big. Uh, the big COVID reporter for the New York Times. Right. And then it came out that a year before COVID, he went on this trip. Yes. And so this is a school trip. You wonder, like, why would any, why would any of these, any teenager want to go on a New York Times school trip? It wasn't actually a school trip. It was a, you know, like a spring break trip or, or summer trip or something. And the reason is because schools are incredibly competitive. And so if you want to get into Yale or Harvard or whatever, this is a way of like building your resume. And I suppose maybe having some experience at the same time. Um, so and it's it's expensive. It's like six thousand dollars for for two weeks, not including airfare. So these are the most privileged students in America. Like they're mm. not they're mm. not uh, Saudi royalty, but they're like very very privileged American student, students. And so on this trip, so Donald McNeil goes on this trip as a favor for a friend or or a colleague, and uh, he had done it one one year before, and there hadn't been any complaints. And and basically, he would give a few lectures and go around to these. Uh, you know, they would go see a like a shaman ceremony and learn things about different things about the local culture. And during this trip, you know, he would have meals with the kids too, who were all white, by the way. Um, and during this trip, they asked him about whether he thought this girl should have been kicked out of school. Uh, who was suspended for saying the N-word. 
And he, in the course of like getting more information, he's a reporter, he mentioned the word. He didn't expurgate it. He didn't say the N-word. He said, did she say the N-word? Or it's hard to talk about this too, because I can't say the word. So did she say the N-word or did she say the N-word? I'm winking when I say one of those. And so- Right, I see. Did she say the phrase or did she actually say the word he was saying? Yeah. So that was in 2019. COVID happens. He becomes the star reporter for COVID. He's on the Daily, which is the most popular podcast in the world, I believe, or at least in the US. Uh, and, you know, anyway, his career is going well. And, and he was at the end of it, L- closer to the end of it than he knew. So the Daily Beast ran a story a few months ago, I think in January, about uh, it turned out that these kids had complained in 2019 um, about his use of the N-word and a few other things that had happened on the trip, um, things that they found problematic, but he did not. And, and <laughs> I would not have found problematic either. Um, so there's an, it turns out, according to the Daily Beast investigation, there was a, an investigation in 2019 um, he was basically giving a talking to, and he wasn't to lead any more trips, not that he would want to down in Peru. Um, and so the Daily Beast reports this, you know, two years later and the New York times, which had already investigated this, you know, becomes like the talk of the newsroom. And of course the times had already investigated the matter was resolved. Um, but then it wasn't resolved anymore because his colleagues knew about it. So, 150 New York Times employees, and we don't know who those were. So it could have been newsroom people, or it could have been like the tech guys or, or whoever, tech gals too, um, and tech non-binary identities. I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, <laughs> Thank you. This is an inclusive yeah. podcast. And uh, so 150 New York Times employees sign a letter um, basically demanding further investigation. And it's a long meander. Further investigation. Let's just pause for a moment. Further investigation into a trip that happened a couple of years ago where he may have suggested to over dinner to essentially grown-up students. These are college oh, age. No, these are high school. Sorry, these are high school students. Okay. So there's some sort of duty of care there and perhaps you should bite your tongue a little bit more. But he was sort of just throwing around ideas about whether about when and how it's appropriate to use to to be sanctioned for a child to be sanctioned for using that slur in an argument on a school bus. Exactly. And this investigation is going to get relaunched. Right. So, right. Okay. So, and this of course comes on the heels of this this what's now called like the summer of the racial reckoning of the George Floyd death. There's, you know, this is not just about Donald McNeil anymore. This is about America. Of times are hot. Right. Times are and, hot. And there's been so much drama and turmoil within the New York Times and within the media about race in particular. Um, so, so long story short, Donald McNeil is eventually forced to resign after I believe 47 years at the paper. He'd started as a copy boy and he worked his way up. Copy boy, that's probably a problematic term at this point now. Um, copy person, yeah. and he worked. Copy yeah, and he worked his way up. And so uh, there was lots of reporting on this. A lot of it was bad. Like the Daily Beast said that he was accused of making sexist statements, but they didn't say what the statements were, um, which either means that they didn't have the statements and they were just uh, assuming that what these kids said was was correct. Um, so there, there was a lot of bad reporting on this. 
And then, I mean, it's it is possible that the type of old guy who throws around questions about whether or not kids should be able to say the n word also said things that aren't that don't comport with our twenty twenty one ideas about what uh, anti sexist language should be. Right. It, the, the question just becomes what the penalty should be for being such a man. Well, so we so so subsequently, he writes his own uh, his own side of the story in a four part series. It's almost twenty thousand words. It's hosted on Medium. He resigns from his job, and then a couple months later, after this, he's like vetted this piece with lawyers. He writes this very long account. So, and he seems to have a very good memory of this stuff. A lot of it because it was investigated. He had notes about what happened at the time. And if you look at the further complaints against him, there it's nothing that would strike me. I'm probably less sensitive than a lot of people in media and a lot of high school students, but it's nothing that would have struck me as particularly inflammatory or problematic. Um, you know, but of course, like this is his experience. These students are obviously more sensitive than he is. Um, but regardless, you can actually see what he says happened and then compare this to the accounts that are published in uh, the Daily Beast and Washington Post, New York Times and everywhere else, um, which is sort of an interesting exercise. Um, mm. So Donna McNeil is forced out. And then this becomes, of course, the talk of Twitter and the talk of American media. And Mike Pesca at Slate is having a Slack conversation. So right now we have two canceled people. There's the 12-year-old and then there's Donald McNeil. <laughs> there's the beginning of the right. universe with the red-hot uh, right. blob of universe, and then there's the 12-year-old girl uh, on the school bus, and then there's the guy who's who's a celebrated health reporter at the New York Times for 45 years who uh, has now essentially been fired from the New York Times for discussing that. And Mike... God bless Mike, who is a friend, who is a friend of mine and a former guest on on the precursor on my old podcast. Uh, uh, he decides that it would be a good idea to to talk about this. I love Mike on Slack yeah. because he is a, the yes. type of person who defends the right to argue, to debate, to think about things, to to have a, a, a to, to have passionate, reasoned. He thinks. He regards it, and I haven't spoken to him since the, all of this happened, but he regards it, I assume, as being a, a sign of respect to colleagues and interlocutors to treat them as grown-ups with whom you can have a conversation. Exactly. And Mike would do this on his podcast as well. So he would have people who uh, who disagreed with him, including his own colleagues on his show. This is something that he has encouraged Jesse and I to do more on our show. Um, it's just to, to have people who, who, who we disagree with. Unfortunately, a lot of them won't come on the show. Um, but this is this is really a value that he holds dear. And I think it's a, a, a very important one um, that you have discussion and debate. And that doesn't mean that anybody's a bad person to disagree. And you hash these ideas out. Um, and the benefit that Mike has, presumably in his mind, is he doesn't work at the New York Times and he doesn't work at a place that is so beholden to woke social media mobs and public shaming. He works at a place, Slate, that was founded on a, on a principle of diversity of thought and alternative uh, argumentation. That's the thing. In its Slate heyday. has clearly changed because – okay, so so we should wrap up yes, what happened with Mike. Yes, the story, yeah. So this yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mike is on Slack uh debate like talking to his colleagues about the Donald McNeil firing and he makes the argument that there are some situations in which white people shouldn't be fired from their jobs for saying the n-word he doesn't actually say the n-word he says he expurgates it but he makes this argument which is an argument that I've made I made it on my podcast a couple weeks before Mike a lot of people have made this argument white people black people people of all colors it's a valid argument 
and and one that I mean, and just to norm. just to clarify, before three seconds ago in exactly. cultural time, it's an argument that some of the most uh, prominent and most uh, extremely woke black activists themselves were making, including Tanahisi. Coates and uh, you know and exactly. people who are who are now associated with the what one might call the eliminationist uh, side of, of the argument. Exactly. But, I wonder. Yeah. I would love to know. He's he's been sort of absent. I know he's working on like like HBO shows, but he has really not weighed in on on any of this, mm. which is very interesting to me. Um, yeah. yeah. Where is he? He's yeah. like in France somewhere. Where is he? Because he's a really smart, articulate, uh, and persuasive guy. It would be interesting to hear what his take is anyway yes sorry so mike do, mike does this thing that until about probably three years ago it was understood had a context to I it i mean not even three years ago no because does. okay so mike mike says this thing long story short mike also he is suspended without pay indefinitely i haven't heard if this is if he has been officially fired yet but his career slate is effectively over so so this was you know 2021 this is how recent it was for the the norm to be that it, there are some cases in which a white person can write or say the word, um, you know, not directed at a person, but in quotations, mentioning its existence, etc. I searched the word on the Slate website exactly as I did on the New York Times website. Of course you did. Course, yeah. This is why we love you, Katie, because no one else could be bothered but you actually winning. Okay. You know, and you feel, <laughs> what did you find? You feel sort detective? of, uh, you feel sort of uh, a little transgressive even typing the letters out at this point. Um, so I searched the word on the Slate website immediately after I heard that Mike was was suspended. It has been printed on the, the Slate website 700 times, including as recently as 2020. So um, you know, I did the same thing uh, during the. Well, the argument could be made though that it's different, right? That the, that hearing the words causes a special kind of pain or something that that seeing it doesn't. I suppose that argument, people, yes, people have made that argument. But regardless, Mike didn't didn't say it. He, he or he didn't type it. He didn't mention it at all. <laughs> and then, uh, well, but then there was an additional claim during uh, during all of yeah. this that he had been recording a podcast and he had to read. I think it was a quote where he had to say the word and so he did a version with it and then he did a version without it and then discussed with his producer after the fact. Uh, and this is something that I've done with profanities as well. You're in, you know, you're in the privacy of your own studio. You go, ah, oh, am I going to say it? Let's hear how it sounds when I actually do the the thing and say the full on fuck and with all the stuff. And then you go, uh, you come back and go, oh, no, we should probably just let's, let's bleep it or let's find another way to do it. And so the the argument was that this was another strike against him because he'd allowed the mouth sound out of his mouth. Right. But the person and even who, though they decided not to right. release I it. mean, he was with his producer. His producer is a white guy. So he didn't even say this in the, you know, in the ear the ear shot of a of a person of color or a black person. But it's so how condescending is that to black it's people? It's so condescending. Seriously. It's so condescending. How condescending is that to all of my friends I'm embarrassed to say who it. are people yes. of color? Like it's ridiculous that yes. they were that like, oh my god, thank goodness. There was none of right. them in the but room it's, it's, because yes. they are so fragile. Right. It's, it's clearly more taboo. But it, I guess the point being that, like, how would this guy have been? How would he have been, like, personally wounded by this? It didn't. I see. Right. Yes. But, but, if that's the if the argument is that there's this legacy of slavery and that just hearing the mouth yes. sound brings up some ancestral vision of lynchings or something, then that wouldn't apply to a white person. Right. Right. I mean, I do agree with you that it is condescending to assume that black people cannot hear the mention of the existence of a word a word that isn't actually uncommon. Um, 
and that they're somehow going to melt. I, I like I, I, find- yeah, I mean, they, that, like they might, they might, like I can totally understand if they have a grandparent who was, you know, if they're descendants of slaves and that is an incredibly taboo thing and it, and it triggers them in some way, that's possible. But it, that would be a vanishingly small fraction of the community well, for whom that, that's the I mean, case. My, my issue with that is that it presupposes that any individual can't tell the difference between uh, mentioning a word and, and hearing it as a slur. Um, and I just, I, I think that people can tell the difference. I mean, obviously, like a lot of people, especially black people think that I'm wrong about this and would argue, no, there is no, uh, there's, you know, this word will never come Well, when you say out. especially black people, I think that's an interesting question as I'm well, be because it's that, interesting, yeah. it's interesting that Mike's producer who ended up, you know, leaking the fact that he said it was a white guy, because in my personal experience, I find that white uh, like progressives are much more exercised and energized about this totally. than any of my black friends. It's the same with trans issues or anything. Like, I mean, my transgender friends of whom I have an increasingly large number now, which is great. They don't give a shit if I accidentally get the pronoun wrong. Like I, I'm sorry, the, the, they didn't quite come out right. Like I'm not, they, they're like, don't worry about it. I mean, it's like, a, you know, just as long as you're trying, as long as you're on my side, but hell hath no fury, like a, you know, like a cis, like a young white, cis millennial who's like you used the wrong word you said that thing so anyway yes. i'll just park that as a as an observation this, but yeah carry on about my this like yeah. level of performative allyship like you're being mad on behalf of people who probably don't give a shit um it's one of the more aggravating <laughs> aggravating and, the, and like if you think of the most oppressed uh members of the of the black community in america like on some some old black guy who endured who still has memories of like jim crow He's not going to give a shit about Mike Pesker on Slate, like saying it in the in, in the context of talking about the word nearly as much as the Brooklyn hipster in the cafe is. Right, right, absolutely. Um, okay, so Mike gets suspended indefinitely, and uh, wait, where were we? So Mike gets suspended indefinitely. So Mike is defended. <laughs> I, I think we basically okay. did, right? Okay. Yeah, yes. All right. yeah. So now Mike is. Is kaput, and at the same time that Mike was enduring this, just as an aside, my favourite podcast, Reply All, implodes yeah. <laughs> for its own insane reasons, which we can also get into. But yeah, finish the thought about closing the loop on that whole triumvirate of right. So the, the moral of the story shit. is: uh, watch out for twelve-year-old girls. Um, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. Twelve-year-old girl says the n-word and and uh and years and years later and thousands of miles away um people are losing their jobs Mm. yeah i mean i want to make the point here to make it clear if the listener doesn't quite get it that we're not arguing for the right of white people to talk uh, to use that word like i'm perfectly happy for there to be a rule that says that you can't ever talk about that word um even if you're just talking about it in, like, you know, you can't ever mention those mouth sounds. If that's going to be the rule and that's the new rule and we all agree on that rule, okay, sign me up. I can do that. I think it's a bit infantilizing. I think it's a bit silly, but I'll buy into it. What I can't buy into is a retroactive public shaming witch hunt of people for not abiding by rules that we've just come up with that they didn't know were rules at the time they were doing it. Right, exactly. This is the thing. It's retroactive, right? So... People are are being 
punished in some cases for things that they that were not taboo at the time. And so, okay, so I searched Slate. Slate has 700, you know, instances of the word. As recently as last year, the New York Times, the place where Donald McNeil was fired for saying the word, what was print, had printed it the week before. The week before. I've looked at wow. NPR. NPR has, uh, it's in like seven, I'm sorry, like 30,000 like of their of their like web pages, um, which means that they mm. have said it on air a lot. I mean, Slate in particular is a place where you know Christopher Hitchens made the argument in the pages of Slate fifteen years ago that white people should be able to to that that censorship in this case is 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 unproductive and white people should uh, you know not be essentially fired for mentioning this word. Um, so you can and see the, how much the, has the changed. Com- Totally. And and the controversy over the word is way less important because there are really no stakes to us changing the rules about, about that if we want to, than the the overarching umbrella under which it's taking place, which is an umbrella in which even ideas about these topics are becoming taboo. So like the <laughs> of those three of those three things that, that comprise that shitstorm that you just described. The middle one, the Peru New York Times health reporter guy, like his sin seemed to be largely that he was sort of dismissing the validity because he was it, it was wasn't part of the accusation that he was also sort of saying like, look, racism is something that was terrible in the past, but in reality these days uh, there's there are no legal impediments to to you on the basis of any race. So I think it was like, even even more nuanced than that. He said that he didn't deny the existence of racism. He said. Different institutions have different, different basically levels of racism, and that, and that what you see in the New York Times is not going to be the same as what you see in the prison system or the military. Right, right. So even so, expressing sort of dissident ideas, and this is where we can bring it into a bigger conversation about what's now being called Substack Bros, I guess, <laughs> uh, which is so what. <laughs> which is basically a phenomenon of independent thinking journalists being forced out of mainstream institutions. I mean, the example that you gave is one of them, but you can rattle off a list of names like Matt Iglesias, who was one of the founders of Vox being forced out of Vox, uh, Andrew Sullivan being forced out of, was it the Atlantic where? He was at Andrew, New York magazine. And I think Matt, forced that magazine. might not be, might be too strong for Matt. I mean, he, I think he right. was increasingly uncomfortable with uh, the sort of, um, I don't know, the level of discourse there. Um, yes, he might be a Barry Weiss situation where Barry also, who, who was the opinion page editor at the New York Times, uh, she left because talk about a toxic work environment. I mean, you know, toxic work environments tend to get associated with minorities finding themselves uh, un- feeling like they're not part of the old boys club. But now we have a toxic world environment, a toxic work environment in which anyone who is, uh, opinions that go against the the grain or that might be a little bit devil's advocate or uh that that don't fit perfectly with the ethos of the of the millennials who now run the public shaming uh social media accounts that influence the institution gets get hounded and get forced out essentially and that happened to Barry and it happened to to Matt and to some extent probably Andrew Sullivan as as well and then there's Matt Taibbi uh leaving Rolling Stone if you don't know these names these are all big heavy hitting like good uh journalists and and opinion writers whose opinions just just tend to they just like sort of poking around and saying things that are a little bit controversial and thinking about things from left field well things that um, that weren't even controversial 
you know, five minutes ago. And and Matt Taibbi, I think he still is doing some things with Rolling Stone. Um, and, and he's been on Substack for a long time. I mean, the other thing is that, uh, you know, Barry was certainly bullied. Matt Iglesias was a boss. So he was, you know, in a, in a different position than her. But it can also be incredibly lucrative um, to leave your institution. Leave. Right. And it turns out that yeah. a lot of so these explain, people were explain like, the economics. Yeah. Explain the economics of this to us. Because 10 years ago, when you were fired by an institution uh, like the New York Times, you were sent out to the Siberian wilderness and you got eaten by a polar bear. Now we have the technology that you can actually have a more lucrative career outside of uh, mainstream institutions than not. A podcast like this is an obvious way to, to do it. And everybody knows how much money Joe Rogan uh, <laughs> makes. So, you know, that's, that's viable. But Substack is this relatively new phenomenon. To people who don't use it, what is it? So it's a newsletter platform. It, it sounds strange that this has become a, you know, a newsletter service has become this sort of hot button um, issue in the last couple of weeks. But basically the way it works is you develop a, a newsletter and a, a basically like a weekly publication or a monthly publication or whatever, and you cultivate an email list and people can pay, can pay essentially to get your newsletter. Um, and some of you can decide to do it free or, or paid or whatever. Um, and if you're uh, a big name like Glenn Greenwald or Matt Iglesias or Matt Tybee, and you have a, a lot of readers, um, you can make a ton of money a ton of money, much, much more money than you would make at almost any staff job in America. And it turns out that... Because people are basically subscribing to a magazine that you self-publish that get that arrives online and they might pay five bucks a month. Right. And, and it has yeah, basically no have... overhead, unless you hire an editor. Yep. It's, uh, you basically create a small business um, with, no, with no overhead. Um, and that requires like you to just write your column. Um mm. So, uh, so some of these guys are doing really, really well, much better than they were doing. I'm like, you know, five times the income um, that they're making at, at these publications. And this is probably not a good trend for a lot of reasons, including, you know, it's incredible. One of, one of, I think one of the main problems that's facing us right now is, is based on the fact that we exist in these little media silos and echo chambers and we don't, uh, talk across party lines, or when we do it, or if we do, it's yelling at each other. And we also don't um, read anything or absorb uh, absorb news from the, you know, the other side. If we can pretend for a moment that there's only two sides in American culture, <laughs> that's another that's another pet peeve of mine. When they when you know people are like, you need to give give air air time to the other side. I'm like, how stupid right. are you? You think there are two sides of everything? There are just two big columns, and there are just conservatives in one, and then there are liberals in the other, or progressives in in the other. And like, I mean, I I sort of whenever I'm accused of being one side or the other, I'm like anyone who anyone who's clear headed about things, if you're judging each issue on its merits, then it's highly unlikely if you look throughout history across places and across times that any particular party or ideology has a total monopoly on being right about everything. So if you're always siding with one, then you know you're going to be wrong on some number. And if you're judging things on their individual merits, then by definition, you're going to end up seeming hypocritical or hopscotchy or like sent or, you know, independent in some way. And you're going to piss off both sides in, in some capacity, because obviously if you were to, you know, if an, if a, if an alien with a super brain were to come down and try to select the most rational solution to a whole range of different problems, 
those problem that those solutions are not all going to be co-opted by the you know are not all going to come from the the one ideology anyway that's my little rant no you're right i mean and, and people hate seem to hate centrist more than anyone else um, that is the worst thing you yeah, can like, do on twitter as if we're wishy-washy or something as if we're like not committed to something i i'm trying to find a, a rhetorical way out of that by calling it like radical centrism or like radical independence or something like right, that but right it is hard to, to to partisans and ideologues to understand the necessity of of judging things on their merits rather than for a team yeah um so substack has now <laughs> now become the target of a campaign that is not only trying to get these people who were hounded, these writers who were hounded out of uh, mainstream journalistic institutions, out of those institutions, but is is they're trying. There are people who are trying to get them off Substack by creating r- rumors about shadowy deals that Substack is making with these journalists. Right, but they're not, uh, and implying that the journalists are uh, publishing hate speech or something. Right. It's, it, the thing is like so much of it is incorrect. So Substack does have, uh, they have what's called the Substack pro- program. And um, uh, and they basically give an advance to somebody uh, in order to like woo them over to Substack, to leave their job and, and woo them to Substack. If you're a really big writer, it's not actually a very good deal because the way it works is they'll give you, let's I'm, let's say $100,000. And then for the first year, uh, they take 90% of your earnings, but you're guaranteed to make that $100,000 uh, for that first year. And then after after that, it goes, it, it switches. So it's just an advance on, on future earnings. It's not like it's it's free money. It's only free money if uh, if y- your Substack doesn't do very well, um, which I'm sure has happened in some cases. Advances don't always uh, make money for the publishing house or, or the platform or whatever. Um, but it's it's just a, it's like the book model. It's you know it's 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 common. Yeah, maybe not in yeah. in, in, uh, in media or at least in, in online media, but it is like it's just a book model. So yeah. a bunch of people got mad because the biggest names on the platform, some of these people who were offered Substack Pro deals. Um, are problematic. They don't. They basically just don't like them. And in terms of people who actually took the deals, I think it's like Matt Taibbi took one is one year. Uh, Matt Iglesias took one. I don't think Len Greenwald did. I don't think Andrew Sullivan did. Um, which financially is the is the better move. And so, but people are mad about this. But what they're they're accusing these people specifically of transphobia. Sometimes it's racism too, or like various other other bigotries. Um, basically, they just don't like them, and so they're using this this Substack Pro deal to sort of argue that Substack is 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 like you know paying these bigots or something like that. Substack also has a, like a pretty diverse apparently group of people within Substack Substack Pro, um, but they're not complaining about those people. They're only complaining about these like five or six people, and they're getting a bunch of the the figures wrong, like. They're saying that it's like Barry Weiss got a, pro, a Substack Pro deal. My co-host Jesse Single, they didn't get offered these deals. Um, so there's been all of this. But even if they had right, got these deals, right. like since when is it the job of like this? Is, so it's not good enough that people who have different opinions from you are excluded from mainstream institutions. You're not even allowed to make a side hustle on an independent platform right. where people pay you directly for your writing anymore. Right. I mean, they're trying to get these people essentially deplatformed from Substack. Yeah, from getting paid by individuals. So they're not they can't go after advertisers because these people don't have advertisers on their on their newsletters. So they're trying to make it impossible for me or you or anybody else to support the writers that we want to directly support. 
Um, and they're doing it by going after the platform. And a bunch of them have uh, have have left the platform. Hilariously, they're going to Ghost, which is the even like more free speech platform, more laissez-faire policies or Medium, um, you know, a place where where lots of people publish, including people who they certainly find problematic. Um, and they're and they're not actually hurting the people they want to hurt. So they want to hurt Glenn Greenwald and Andrew Sullivan and Jesse Single and Barry Weiss. The the people who are going to leave Substack, uh, who are going to take their business from Substack, because are not the same people who would be giving those people money. So it doesn't even make any sense. And what has happened? So my co-host Jesse Signal is one of these characters, and he's not in the same. No, no sorry, sorry to Jesse, but he's not in. The same, <laughs> he's not in the same league as the not, big guys. Let's not, just say Jesse. He's not. He's in. He's in podcast my league. He's a. He's in our league. He's not. He's not. You know. He's not making a million dollars a year off of his stub sack like some of these people are. That's not Jesse. Um, unfortunately, because then I could pay him less. <laughs> and so Jesse has been just basically defamed all across Substack. So people are writing these these newsletters on Substack. This explain the backstory of Jesse because uh, <laughs> I've I've spoken to him on ABC Radio in Sydney talking about um about cancel culture when there have been I think it was after the J.K. Rowling letter to try to explain this to to people. But if you're not super online, then the whole the, what we're talking about may seem quite abstract. Like why are these these people must be bad right. if they're trying to get deplatformed? Like so, what exactly is it? Let's take Jesse, and then maybe you can pick either an Andrew Sullivan or a Matt Iglesias or a Matt Taibbi and explain to people who aren't familiar with them the sorts of things that they're saying that are so objectionable. So Jesse's big crime is that in 2018, he wrote a a big story for The Atlantic, a cover story for The Atlantic about youth gender dysphoria and, and when kids transition. And this piece was deeply reported. It was like 10,000 words. It was way too fucking long. And he spent years <laughs> working on this piece and went all over the country interviewing people, talked to tons of clinicians. It was incredibly thorough. Jesse doesn't – everything that Jesse does is thorough. He, he does not know how to do like superficial uh, anything. Um, he is the most pedantic little Jew you will ever <laughs> meat he's like he's like a burrowing worm he is Uh. is. and he is accused of only like being pedantic and focusing on trans issues but no he's like that with everything um so jesse wrote this incredibly thorough piece and there was this crazy online backlash and i knew it was going to happen because i had a year before i had written a piece about detransitioners where people who transition from one sex or gender to the other and then change their mind and transition back. And there was this crazy backlash. A lot of it was online, but it was also offline. So we were burning stacks of the paper and sending me video of it. It was this, it's the whole thing. It was just a crazy time. And if, and just to clarify, if you read online depictions of Jesse's piece, it, they will describe the piece as being uh, dismissive of the transgender experience and, uh, and a way of trying to um, blow up, uh, detransitioning as being a real problem that it's not. Right. And then you actually read the piece itself and you go, that's not at all right. what's actually in the piece. There, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's simply a piece about, um, it's, it's a piece that I found very respectful of the whole spectrum of, of gender experience. 
and simply saying, like, what should the process be from a clinical position when uh, physicians are confronted with these slightly more ambiguous cases? Uh, you know, you don't want to funnel every single five-year-old who uh, who has uh, some kind of self-expression that might not be consistent with their uh, with the gender that they were assigned at birth into a, a highly ideological path where they're being forced into uh, into an assumption about their transgenderism. But nor do you want to ignore that. So how do you deal with those conflicting interests? That was the the framing, and some people found that so offensive. That I guess to to be as respectful as possible towards the anti Jesse brigade uh they might have seen that as being yet another attempt by the anti-trans system that had for years tried to diminish the transgender experience to raise little question marks and you know dispute little things and nitpick or something which is not what the article did but i'm just trying to frame it in their context and that critique of jesse's piece started spiraling out of control into what has now become I mean, I feel so sorry for the guy because it is a truly defamatory freight train of innuendo about him being like somehow obsessed with trans people or something. Right. So this, so there was some good faith criticism of the of the piece. Um, of course, there always is, but a lot of it was just ad hominem attacks, and a lot of people probably didn't read it. Um, and you know, since you read it, you know that the, the the rumors about the piece in no way reflect what it actually says. Jesse, the irony of all this is that Jesse is f- far to the to the left on on trans issues than probably most Americans. He's in favor of of youth gender dis. Uh, I'm sorry of a uh, of youth transition. Uh, you know, with a good diagnosis, he raises a few a few questions, but for the most part, like he's on board with 95% of, of the orthodoxy. Um, and so this, this has mutated though, into this bizarre defamation campaign where a, a, a writer, for instance, named Jude Doyle, she's, or they, sorry, he, uh, Judah transitioned a couple months ago. Wow. You caught yourself quickly there. <laughs> I, did. Well, that was, so Jude, I think you just cycled through every pronoun in the space of three quarters of a right. second. Uh, so Jude was a, a well-known feminist writer until, until very recently. And, and then recently transitioned, Not actually well-known, sort of well-known, well-known on Twitter. Um, so Jude Doyle, writes that Jesse is uh, is pro-conversion therapy, which is not true, and also that he stalks trans women. And, and Jude said, basically, I don't need to provide the names because there are too many of them. Just, I don't know. They said something like, I don't know a trans woman in New York media who doesn't have a story about Jesse. Meanwhile, none of these stories have actually come out because they're, is no evidence that he's a stalker, that he's obsessed with trans women, that he harasses trans women. None of the stories have come out. And to, to clarify, what he might do is if someone accuses him of being uh, anti-trans, he'll say, I'm not, can you provide evidence? Right. And then that will be... That's harassment. And then the fact that he's got a lot of Twitter followers will be evidence of, yeah, of him sicking his hordes on right. on them. And if, you know, if someone who who is genuinely anti-trans then then throws a, a slur at the person or something, then that gets all bound up into the Jesse is anti-trans thing because he tweeted something that was questioning of my criticism of him and now the, the mob has come for me. Right, so defamation is 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 okay, but defending yourself is not. It's yeah. basically what it comes down <laughs> right. to. Right. And this, has been, right. this, is, this campaign has lasted for over two years. Um, it's been in some ways arguably good for his career his sub doing very well our podcast is doing very well um but 
it also has this, you know, Jesse is a serious writer. He's written for, he was a staffer at New York magazine. He's written for the Atlantic and the New York times. And, and he wants to be able to write for prestige outlets. And these people have made that very difficult. He still has relationships with some, some outlets and I'm sure this will not be the last that he publishes with them. But if you're an editor who, you know, might want, might want a Jesse single story, a Jesse single piece, uh, you're going to have to deal with a bunch of shit from, from Twitter, if not from your own colleagues. So people mm. are going to avoid it. And that's really unfair because he hasn't actually done anything wrong. He's incredibly thorough. Um, and he, he he's not a bigot. And nobody has – he's not a bigot. He's not a harasser. He's not a stalker. And nobody has provided any sort of evidence or even told stories about what he has done to them. Um, and that for some reason doesn't matter. It, it really reminds me of QAnon because these people don't even need to have a victim to believe in this conspiracy. Um, and it's just, it's hmm. gotten really crazy today. So today, um, uh, it's Monday. Um, Jesse, uh, not here. It's not, baby. Oh, yeah, it's Tuesday right, already Tuesday. in Australia. Oh, We're way ahead of the future. Um, so Jesse in, in Monday in America, um, there's an organization called glad that used to be known as the gay and lesbian Alliance against defamation. Um, hilariously glad, uh, defame Jesse. They added him to this list of what they're calling their accountability list or their accountability project. And it's this website you go to and there's a drop down menu and you can choose people like Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Rick Santorum. Um, and then Jesse single and, uh, and it'll, it'll give you a little, a little bullet pointed list about, about Jesse's crimes. There's, it's a three bullet pointed list and they got all of their, all of them wrong. All of the facts are wrong um, to the point where Jesse complained about this as he rightfully should on Twitter. And people started uh, presumably um, complaining to glad and they started editing it in like in real time. Um, they've still left him up there. Uh, they, they also had JK Rowling on the list. They, she was on the list this morning and mm. she's no longer on it, which is, I guess what happens when you have nice fancy lawyers, you can get yourself removed. Um but but Jesse still is, and so so this happened today. Dan Savage, who uh, I don't know if, if he's if he's well known in Australia, but uh, he's probably well known within the podcast universe. Yeah. But I mean, I'm a big fan of his, and he's uh, yeah, he's done. He's been on my. Uh, I used to have a show on Radio National in Australia, which he was a guest on. He's America's most celebrated, probably sex advice podcaster and columnist. Yeah, what? So Dan defended Jesse, um, and Dan and I used to work together at the Stranger. He's a he's 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 been through this for 15 years. People have, have also accused him of transphobia. Um, but that has sort of quieted down in recent years and he sort of kept his head down. And then today he popped his head up and he defended Jesse and, uh, he's now trending on Twitter. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Dan is the most loving <laughs> kind of like, uh, gay, expansive like sex sex positive yeah. uh gender positive do whatever you want express yourself however you want find get your rocks off however you want sort of sort of person and the the idea that he would be anti trans for defending Jesse's journalism is so topsy turvy it's so orwellian it's so back to front it's it's so obvious that the accusation means nothing other than you are dissenting from our orthodoxy, therefore we're going to hunt you down and try to 
punish you rather than you actually are disrespecting the humanity of people because he would be absolutely okay with all expressions of of gender with all individual expressions of gender he might just you know it's the, the, the horrible thing about this katie is once the slur is said enough against you once the accusation is made and the rumor mill is trundling along it almost doesn't even matter whether or not the original atlantic piece was reasonable because it takes on a life of its own doesn't it it's it's right. like not only is a publication that hires Jesse now going to have to deal with the Twitter hordes who come after them, they're also just going to have to deal with the large bulk of people who vaguely know the name and vaguely know that it's a negative that the guy is uh, suspicious. Right. It just becomes accepted as true, and it's been really interesting to watch because it, you can see the process of these rumors mutating. Right. Um, so first of all, uh, you know, it started out with Jesse. He what was it? He, he was accused of like emailing. So I don't, I don't remember what it was. There's no, there's no evidence that any of this, that, that he's done anything wrong, but these sort of, these things sort of mutate. Right. So, it, so someone says he's obsessed with trans women. And then a couple years later that becomes, uh, you know, he's a stalker. Um, and at the same time, you know, there are very few people in mainstream media who are willing to look into this story, um, which is, which is really disappointing because it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, and it's one that tells us a lot about the, about the moment that we're in right now. And I would love to see Ben Smith of the New York times, New York times media column, take this on, but I don't think he's going to do it because the penalty well, he'd get fired. He probably wouldn't get, get fired, fired, but he would get, he would get socially ostracized um, in a way that's just not worth it for most people. You have to be really really ostracized already to be able to defend Jesse. When I say he'd get fired, what I mean is if he wrote about it honestly, there'd be a massive social media backlash against him. And then if he tried to defend himself after the backlash, instead of putting out a statement saying, I now understand the hurt and pain that I've caused and it's time for self-reflection, if he tried to double down on his right to write about it, then there'd be some kind of inquiry and then the Slack machine would start getting going and his millennial colleagues would start chattering. And it wouldn't take, I mean, it might take a while, but eventually this rumor mill would would arise and it would and there would be some reason why uh there'd be some reason to let him go i just think we, i think we've gotten to that to that point it's like i mean i was speaking literally just yesterday to a millennial about uh jk rowling because i'm interviewing eddie izzard later yeah. today for another project that i'm doing and i'm a huge fan of eddie's eddie is a great uh, a great british comic and actor um and she's now a she after having been a they for a while um, after having been a, a he, um, and I'm interviewing him about something completely unrelated. Uh, and so I was just mentioning, you know, being nervous about getting the pronoun, pronouns right because the she is, is quite new. And this millennial producer who I was w- working with was saying, um, and I was saying, like, I don't think that she'd mind at all. I mean, it's un- like she seems like a reasonable person, and if I screwed up, I'm not, you know, I'm not too bothered. And I was saying it's usually the, like what I was saying to you earlier, it's usually the the very woke, cis, straight, uh, white 
uh, person who's trying to enforce the, the the rules more than the person who's actually a member of the minority community. And this millennial producer said, "Yeah, I mean, I just like you know, why do people get so upset about about this on the other side, pretending that there's some kind of that there's a they who are trying to enforce something? It's like J.K. Rowling has turned into a transphobic bigot because she says that they are stopping her from saying things, but nobody's stopping her from saying things, and nobody's being punished just for speaking the truth. Like she's she's tilting at windmills, she's making up uh, up." up strawman and it's so sad that i that my youth that was spent loving these books has been contaminated by jk rowling turning you know frothing out such bigotry uh into the world and i was like wow have you read the letter have you read what jk rowling literally said which is 100 percent supportive of transgender people thousands percent empathy towards them but as a woman and as a victim of sexual violence from men I personally feel that the experience of growing up as a girl and going through puberty as a girl means that I'm entitled to have some sort of solidarity with with women, with biological women, with womanhood uh, that that is uh, quarantined in some way from uh, from people from from trans women. That there should be some some understandable difference, some recognition of the difference between a a, a girl who was born a girl and grew up as a girl and went through puberty as a girl and someone who didn't and that that's all she's saying and that claim now and like i might be fired in five years because even even saying that and presenting it as a reasonable rather than a bigoted position is a fireable offense in five years i think right now simply mentioning that is not fireable yet at least in australia we'll see but that belief that there's something this that belief that was so cherished by the feminists of the 1960s by Jermaine Greer and Camille Paglia, who did so much for womanhood, the idea that there's something special about being a girl, that 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 claim is now enough to get you in the minds of my millennial producer to be perceived as a frothing-at-the-mouth transphobic bigot and to get Jesse's, I don't even know if Jesse believes that, but to get Jesse's life ruined and then Dan Savage, who defends him in a swirl of controversy, it's no longer about hatred or respect for the humanity of the other person or respect for the ideas of the other person or or trying to build each other up by bouncing ideas off each other and trying to be generous in our interpretation of what other people think in order to collaborate on on reaching towards a deeper truth it's i don't know what it is it's like it's it's a it's it's about thought crimes right and it's punitive and there's no room for forgiveness and things are being uh you know mediated things from the past are being mediated through the standards of today, which is a a very bad trend. Um, Yeah. Something strange is going on and it's hard to, it's hard to know, you know, I, I, I think that we're in a moral panic, but it's also possible that I'm within the moral panic and I can't see it. And we're sort of panicking about this thing that, um, you know, is isolated. And the truth is that we spend too much time to Twitter on Twitter. But all of those things are probably true. I mean, and, and it could still be a problem. Right. Exactly. And, but when you see people being fired from their jobs and in the U S I mean, because healthcare is so intrinsically tied with employment, um, that could be a literal death sentence for somebody, which is which is a totally different different problem, um, you know, and one that <laughs> needs to get addressed politically. Um, but you know, I mean, this is just being fired can ruin your life. Um, and some people benefit. I think I've 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 oddly uh, benefited from from all this sort of controversy around my work, 
in some ways. I mean, financially, I certainly have. Socially, probably not. Um, yeah, and this is look. This is something that the critics of of can of the of the. Uh, not the critics of cancel culture, but the critics of quote-unquote cancel culture, the critics of conversations like these often say, which is like, where is the person who's doing so so poorly out of this? You talk about all these journalists who got fired from the New York Times. They're making millions on Substack now. Like, people are doing okay. J.K. Rowling is still selling lots of books. This is, this is a problem. This is a storm in a teacup because nobody's actually really being uh, having their lives ruined, which I think is missing the point. Well, I think it's also not I true. About- I mean, like, I can think of, I, I was just, right before we started talking, I was watching a podcast between two young women who were fired from their jobs, one in, one in publishing, one in tech. Um, for expressing basically the same opinion that J.K. Rowling did, and these are not people that that most of us have ever heard of, um, you know. Yeah, and I mean, in addition to that, I, what I care about as a broadcaster and a conversationalist, uh, and is is our ability to have uncomfortable conversations, pardon the pun, about things in the hopes of of creating a common demos or a common polity that has us all on more on increasingly the same page and that tries to act against the fragmentation and the fracturing of culture that's happening thanks to social media and all kinds of political forces like globalization and so on and the less you can talk about things the more you know the 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 less we're going to be able to do that and and so it's less about the individual victims and more about the message that they send to everybody else exactly where Every time you have a conversation, you're always thinking a second and a half ahead about what you might be about to say and about whether that could trigger a tripwire. And look, it's great if you're thinking a second and a half ahead so that you don't say, hey, toots, nice ass, and you're about to slap someone's right. ass in the office place, you know, in the, in the workplace. And I totally understand that at any given point in cultural evolution, there are going to be people who sound a bit like us saying, it's political correctness gone mad. But this isn't that. This isn't that. It's not that we're saying you should have the right to make racist jokes. It's that we're we're saying that ideas, ideas, articulating beliefs and opinions should not be grounds for a social media mob to publicly shame a large company into a knee-jerk reaction that makes you lose your livelihood and in the United States right. your, your health care. Right. It, the thing is, like... It is true that we live in a society. There are things that are verboten. There are things that you shouldn't say, and there are always going to be consequences for that. But what is happening is that the the line of acceptable thought has become so narrow that things that were that are factual beliefs, things like there, you know, that there's a difference between males and females, or that male and female are separate categories that exist, um, you know, have become problematic, have become fireable offenses. And that's deeply troubling. Um, you know, obviously standards change over time. It is the things that we are that are socially acceptable to say now. In some ways, of course, I think that's it's it's obviously it's good that people aren't uh, aren't are will face social social stigma for throwing out racial slurs for being actually racist. Um, but the overturn window is closing so narrowly that nobody's going to be able to get through it soon. Um, and if you're if you're in yeah, media, if if your job is discussing ideas, that's a big problem. It's also the case that I mean, precisely the uh, it's it's precisely the arbitrariness of where we find ourselves on the advancing needle of of uh, ethical progress that makes me suspicious of people who want to condemn someone forever for for uh, breaching 
the norms of of right now. Um, if that's a slightly complicated sentence, let me put it this way: there will be things in the future that when they look back on today, they think, "How on earth were those people just casually doing those things?" Absolutely. And the people who are out with the pitchforks and the flaming torches now, trying to condemn people for being racists or transphobes or whatever the transgression might be, seem completely oblivious to the fact that if they were living in the 1950s, they'd be thinking 1950s thoughts. If they were living in the 1700s, they'd be thinking 1700s thoughts. And in 50 years' time, people will look back on the content of today and there'll be the little disclaimers in front of the Disney Disney movies that my kids have to sit through for 10 seconds uh, that say the the portrayals of of uh, of race in the Jungle Book were wrong then, and they are wrong today. And this happens on Aladdin, and this happens on all kinds of. By the way, I was looking for the Jungle Book, Katie, the other day for my kids, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Even when I typed it in, only Jungle Book Two came up. And then I tried logging out of the kids' account, and I logged back in as an adult, huh. and Jungle Book showed up. So it's actually not available anymore for children. Because Jungle Book is so problematic. Is it because of the little the loincloth? Deals... Because of, uh, is it childhood no, sexuality? No, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it's colonialism. Yeah. Um, but, you know, think about climate change, for example. The, sure. the depiction, The depiction in film of people casually getting on planes and going, hey, let's go for a weekend to Hawaii. Or the treatment of animals, which I think our ethical intuitions are becoming increasingly keen on. The idea of people just going out for a burger and and the people in the movie have don't express any question about whether or not that cow was tortured all of its life in order to make a pound of its flesh slightly cheaper. These are things that I could imagine in a hundred years. People look back and go, "How did they just do do that?" And they paid no attention to it. Whatsoever. Oh, I'm sure. I, I would so, assume like, that in a hundred, not even a hundred years, and you know, maybe thirty years, we'll be eating lab-grown meat. Um, mm. You know, and, and looking back and, at, our, at our at our previous selves with utter disgust. Yeah. So hopefully, the people of the future will have more sympathy towards the woke of today than the woke of today do towards the people of the past. I guess is my point. <laughs> or or not. <laughs> <laughs> No, it'll be flaming flaming torches and pitchforks yeah. all the way into the future, yeah. perhaps. Um, and lastly, just because you mentioned GLAAD, that makes me really sad, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance, that they were maligning Jesse and and so on, because it re- reminded me that Amnesty, Yeah. Uh, I recently got stuck into Amnesty on social media because... Alexei Navalny, is that uh, the name of the Russian yeah. dissident? Am I misremembering that? The incredible, probably the bravest political activist in the world who voluntarily went back to Russia so that Putin could lock him in a in a freezing cold cage uh, for simply uh, fighting for democracy in Russia, was taken off the list of political prisoners by Amnesty because he had expressed racist, it, I don't know if it was racist, but he was basically, it was anti-Georgian sentiment or... Uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, basically saying that Russia uh, should should be more protectionist mm-hmm. towards foreign foreign ethnicities, uh, and that was enough to get him. And so I was I was saying on Twitter, like, how does how does a, how does something that he said twenty years ago about non-ethnic Russians have anything to do with whether or not he's currently a political prisoner? Right, and you've seen it's this, extraordinary. Yeah, this ideology has uh, has taken over institutions. I mean, that's the thing. If this were just happening on Twitter, that would be one thing, but institutions are really changing. You can see this in the ACLU, in lots of gay rights organizations, Planned Parenthood. Um, 
and it's concerning. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know where we go from here. Um, do you want to leave us with a, a more optimistic note? Where do we, <laughs> what's the, what's the sort of best and worst case way that this now pans out? Okay. Like worst case, I do, I do not think we're going to get to some sort of like cultural revolution. Um, I do not think that the United States is ever going to be rounding people up and putting them in prison camps for wrong thing. Our institutions, our government institutions are too strong for that. Um, but you know, a class of people being, uh, being unhirable, that's certainly not hard to imagine. That's happened before. Um, I think that this moment will pass because everything does. And if you look sort of really big picture, it's always progress. We always make progress. And, uh, and so I, I take, I take heart in that. And I also, I, I'm a pessimist. Well, so, I mean, do we? Sometimes we don't. Big picture. Like, I mean, I, mean big I, picture. I guess it depends how long, yeah. <laughs> well, depends how long you're counting. Well, so but, I'm, I'm uh, such a pessimist that when I get depressed or when I start to think about like, like how bad it, it appears as though things are going, I think like, you know, this is a really small moment in time. The universe is mm. billions and billions of years old. And ultimately. <laughs> oh, we're going out to yes, the universe again now. Yes. Yeah. The, okay. The red hot, uh, the red exactly. hot nothingness at the beginning exactly. of the universe. And so ultimately nothing really matters. So, so that's my way of soothing myself to sleep. Uh, instead of thinking so, about my That's slim tired. pickings, Katie. Yeah, yeah. That's not much consolation <laughs> to me. Uh, okay, well that's uh, that's nice, and uh, and thank you for your time and and uh, and for talking about all of these things on your excellent uh, on your on your podcasts, I should say, because you're you're something of a doyen of podcasts. You currently have two podcasts, is that no, right? No, I just have the one. Oh, you just have blocks and reported. I do yes. Maybe I'll maybe I'll fire Jesse and start a new one though if he gets if yeah. he gets too cancelled. <laughs> all right, I'm in. Thanks, right. Katie. Good to talk to you. 